All right, let's flip over to Acts 16, if you wouldn't mind. And for time's sake, uh, we're going to jump right in. There's a lot to cover today, and I'm um, hoping to finish. So, Acts chapter 16, and go ahead, if you would, um, we'll start in verse 25. It says, There about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were, uh, excuse me, everyone's bonds were unfastened. And the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, "Do not harm yourself, for we are all here." And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, and your household, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household uh, that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to you to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. And the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed." Now, I want to kind of start at the end here and then circle around with a little bit of history that I think will help give us a context for what's going on here and how we can learn from it. But I think one of the most bizarre and possibly uh, backwards thing in all the Bible is in verse 40. It says, so they went out uh, to leave, excuse me, they went out uh, from, of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So what's happened here, if you read it, Paul and Silas get released from prison after everything has happened to them. And after they get out of prison, they go to, back to Lydia's house, which has kind of become this kind of central location uh, for the work there where the church has started in Philippi. And they, Paul and Silas, encourage the brethren. In other words, they just got beat with rods. They've been, they were violated. If you, I mean... I'm not trying to be crass here, but if you think about it, they were stripped naked publicly. That's what it tells us. The magistrates come up and strip them naked publicly and then beat them with rods, no trial, nothing, and they get beat down. And how violated they must have felt, how vulnerable, how uh, assaulted they must have felt. And then after that, to be thrown in prison, and again, the, the uh, think about the Roman prisons, they... There's no doctor in Roman prisons. There's no um, like prison hospital. There's a dirt or stone floor with hay. 
Their feet are in stocks. That's not chains. Those are stocks. So they're forced to lay in this hay where other prisoners have been forced to lay. They don't get to use the restroom somewhere else. They don't get food. They don't get treatment for their wounds. They get none of that. And so afterwards, the, the, there's, we have the event of the earthquake, and we'll talk more about that. And then you have the events with the jailer, and then the jailer gets saved and his family. And then the, uh, the word police there literally means people with rods, <laughs> is what it means. So the, they come back to the jail, and they say, hey, uh, let's release, we're going to release them for whatever reason. We have no idea. Maybe they knew that the original uh, trial, which wasn't a trial, the public thing that happened was a farce and they just hey they got their beat down let's let them go for whatever reason they say hey let's let these guys go Paul says hey it's not going to work that way he says we're Roman citizens and you violated all of our rights and because of that you have to come and tell us to come out and and we may get into why he did that it's I think it's safe to say it's not this reaction of the flesh like we're going to stick it to the man now or something like that but more along the lines of you defamed us publicly, you shamed us publicly, you gave us a reputation in public of being reprobates and misleading people. So now publicly you're going to come and you're going to recant on that and you're going to get us out of jail. And that's what they do. They come, the, the leaders of the city of Philippi, they come, they apologize, and they bring Paul out. And so when Paul and Silas come out, what happens? They go back to Lydia's house and they are able to encourage the brethren. They don't go to the brother and say, do you know what happened to us? They don't go to Timothy and Luke and go, why didn't you guys get arrested? Where the heck were you? Why are we the only ones that got beat? You should have got beat too. You were there. They don't go to the brother and say, why didn't you guys bring us food? There's no food in Roman prisons. You own the food and clothing that you get are what your family or friends bring you. Why didn't you bring us food? Why didn't you give me a new you know, toga or whatever. Why didn't, well, we're here now. Let me tell you all the bad stuff that, ha that happened to us. Come for me, come for me, come for me. No, they're able to encourage the other brethren. And this, this idea is a life, I think we'd all want that life, right? I mean, ultimately, when, you, when we sit down and we think about what our lives, we want our lives to be about, it's weird because we have a nature that says, please cater to me and help me and comfort me. And, that, and comforting each other is good. It's important. I'm not putting down being comforted. But that's not where we're supposed to live. That's not the, the mode that we're supposed to operate in. But instead of operating there, it's this life that is able to go through everything that they went through and then go back to Lydia's house and say, we're here to help you. We, get, we want to encourage you. Yeah, we got the poo beat out of us. It's okay. Because you'll never believe what happened. The jailer, he got saved. Him and his whole family. God's building his kingdom. God's doing something great. And so really what I, what I want to kind of loop back around to is how did they get there? If you remember like four or five weeks ago, in Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas split, split ways. You guys remember that? So what happens is, they both, Paul says to Barnabas, hey, let's go and encourage the churches again. Where we, where we went, it's been months now. Let's go back through and let's go encourage all the churches that we planted and the churches that we visited. Barnabas says, that's great. He says, let's take John Mark. Paul says, no, we're not going to take John Mark. He ditched us. He's not reliable. We're not taking him. 
Barnabas says, oh, man, I mean, I'm, this is my interpretation. Barnabas says, hey, no, let's take John Mark. If we look at Barnabas as a person, he was always an encourager. He was a second-chance guy. He says, no, let's take John Mark. Paul says, no, we need f- fidelity, and we need you know, somebody we can trust in the hardest of times. It gets so heated, it gets so sharp, literally sharp, so pokey in each one of them, that they say, we just have to go a different way. And so Barnabas takes uh, uh, his, his nephew Mark, and they go to Cyprus, and then Paul starts heading north. Now, the, the Bible follows Paul. That's nothing to say anything about Barnabas per se, but the, the Bible follows Paul. So it starts off with this break. Then when Paul heads north with Silas, they start heading up. They kind of veer northwest, and they try to, remember it says they try to go into Asia, and the Holy Spirit forbids them. You might recall the maps that we had up there. So they tried to go into Asia. The Spirit said no. Then they tried to go into Bithynia, which is northeast. The Spirit said no. So they end up in Troas. And in, in, I believe it's Troas. In Troas, who do they meet? Timothy. Or no, Lystra, they meet Timothy. Troas, they meet Luke. So he's, they're virtually hedged in this journey where the Holy Spirit says, no, you can't preach the gospel here, which might seem a little weird. Then the Holy Spirit says, no, you can't preach the gospel here. Seems a little weird. So they end up in that city. They pick up two extra guys for this journey in two different locations, Timothy and, and Luke. Luke is the chronicler. So he picks up Luke. And because he picks up Luke, we have the book of Acts today to talk about and to reflect on and to see what the early church was like. He picks up Timothy, and Timothy becomes a, uh, goes on to become this pastor that pastors a pretty unruly church and all sorts of stuff. He makes a huge impact on the work. So he gets hedged about. So in, in that kind of hedging, we're like, yeah, right on, divine appointments. This is great. Then in, is there when they pick up Luke where they, he receives a dream, and he says it's a, a man in Macedonia, and they say, come and help us in Macedonia. And it specifically says that, that he told the others, and they all agreed, well, we have to go to Macedonia then. And so they head up to Macedonia. They take a boat and they, start, they head up to Macedonia and they end up in Philippi. And in Philippi, it was a man in a dream that said, come here. And in Philippi, they meet a woman with a household. They meet Lydia. And Lydia is a, uh, a woman of means. And she, she, she's got a, a reasonably sized house. She's able to have guests. She's able to do that, which was rare in those days. Most people had a hut. A, well not, I mean, you know, adobe type style or stone or whatever it was. But it was not... Nice. These, these, most people did not live in nice accommodations. Anyway, the, they meet Lydia. The Lord has spoken to her. She hears what they have to say. She gets saved. The church virtually starts in Lydia's home. Okay. Now, it's from Lydia's home. They seem to be traveling back and forth from Lydia's home to this place. Uh, I like the King James in this case where it says, the place where prayer was wanton to be made. Wanton, the word there meaning like, like it was... It was like lusted after, like, we have to pray here. We have to do this. That's the idea. So you have these women that were getting together for prayer. They meet Paul. This church is born. And now Paul and the, the fellows are kind of commuting from Lydia's house back and forth to this place of prayer. And we looked at it last week. It's one day or at this certain time. They'd been there for a while. They're walking to this place of prayer. And as we talked about last week, this servant, the slave girl who was possessed. Remember, we, we did talk about that. It, it, it says, um, well, I don't remember the exact wording that it says, but it says that she was possessed with a demonic spirit. And, but the demonic spirit, if you remember, it's, it's she had a spirit of python. She was possessed by what they believed to be the spirit of Apollos that was manifested as a python. 
So through this spirit, she was able to predict the future. And evidently, she was fairly accurate because there were, her owners were able to get a lot of money from her by using her in this, in this way as a, as a divine, diviner, as it were. So in this uh, moment, she's been following them for many days. Paul comes to this point, seemingly by the leading of the Holy Spirit. He turns around, he casts the demon out, and then this, this farce occurs where the owner of this girl are upset because their means of gain are gone. And so they go to the magistrates, they say, and they make an accusation. They say, hey, this guy is telling us to do things, customs, that we are not allowed to obey as Roman citizens. That's what, that's what their claim is. Immediately, these guys fall on Paul and Silas. We don't know where Timothy and Luke are at this point. Perhaps Timothy and Luke were going to second service. We have no idea what was happening, but they weren't there. And so they get arrested, and, and they get beaten publicly, stripped naked, beaten publicly, thrown in prison. So what's, what are we looking at here? We're looking at a journey that was ordained by God where they ended up in a miserable place. And for, it's interesting because for many of us, we view suffering as I've done something wrong. Have you ever had that thought before where something bad is... Now, some suffering, let me say this, we just did something wrong, right? I mean, <laughs> if we go out, if we're driving recklessly and we wreck our car and, you know, you don't have insurance, you can't go, oh, God, why did you do this to me? You know, I, we know what we did. But sometimes there's just suffering. Whether it's a broken world or broken people around us or our brokenness, there's suffering. And sometimes God allows it Sometimes God brings us through it. It's, it's a fool's errand to try to determine every type of suffering and why it happens. But here's the deal. Back to the original point. We can so often feel like when we suffer, we did something wrong. When in reality, suffering is just part of our Christian walk. It's part of the human experience. You know, as I mentioned it last week in, in Psalm 73, Asaph writes this whole psalm. And the whole psalm is about that wicked people never suffer. And you have to love his, his, uh, his uh, poetry because he says, their eye is fat and it bulges. <laughs> Meaning like they see, they take whatever they see. They just have anything that they want. And, he's, and he goes on to say, they never get sick. They never have any troubles. That nothing happens to them. Have you ever, have you ever felt that way? Because he comes to the conclusion where he says, surely I have walked with the Lord. I've walked in holiness in vain. He says, because I suffer and I have difficulty. And for many of us, when we experience suffering or difficulty that is not our fault, we can go to this place where we say, I did something wrong. Or God is not good because if he was good, he would not let this happen. Or we say something to the effect of, uh, what can I do to make this stop? What behavior do I need to engage in that will convince God to stop this suffering? And it's kind of this, we get this like kind of a warped idea of what suffering is, what it does, where it comes from, and why it happens. When in reality, we just live in a broken world. And we've talked about this quite a bit over the years. But the reality is each one of us, we have free will. And with that free will, we can bring suffering or we can bring blessing. 
I'd be willing to bet that all, all of us, every single one of us in this room, can point to an event or a decision that we made that brought another person suffering. And if we're really honest, I bet we can point to a time or multiple times where we did it on purpose. With our words, with our actions, with our finances, with any faculty that we might have, we've done things to make someone else suffer. So, what happened, so to that person, what, happened, what, is, what do they say? Was it God or was it us utilizing what we have to do it? And people have done that to us. They've made decisions with their words, with their actions, with their finances, whatever it might be, and it's caused us suffering. And some of that is on purpose. Now, last week we talked in detail about victimization about versus victory, and that's really important because victimization... And what I mean by victimization is, is walking life out as a victim is, is fairly easy, simple. I'm not, I'm not mocking victims. So please don't go out here saying James is victim shaming. I'm not saying that. Because millions of people get victim, victimized all the time. And it's not their fault. But what you do with your victimization will decide who you are and the life that you live. And so with Paul and Silas, these guys are victims, they were assaulted. All their rights were violated. They were laid naked in public. I, I can't imagine that how, can, can you imagine being naked and beaten in public with absolute zero judicial anything? What a shame that would be. How difficult that would be. How do you get up the next day? How do you go to church again the next day? Hey, aren't you that dude I saw naked getting beat? Yeah, that was me. And so they have this, they make this decision at midnight, and they begin to, to pray and sing. That's what we talked about last week. They decide to not take on the identity of what's happened to them, but instead to take on the identity, identity of who God says they can be. And they do it through acknowledging and worshiping, cherishing, considering, working through who God is and what he's done. And they begin to sing about it. And because they take that stance, all of a sudden through this suffering that they have been guided to. I'm not saying that God caused this suffering. Someone's free will and dismay over losing money caused this suffering. A corrupt government that said, we're not going to even find out if you're Roman citizens. We're just going to beat you naked caused this suffering. Their suffering was 100% caused at the hands of others. But they don't, they don't take that identity on. Instead, they begin to focus on what, who God is, what he has for them. And all of a sudden, the people start seeing, the, the, the prisoners are hearing. And then you have this event that happens. There's so much going on here. It's, it's, it's honestly, uh, you know, for good pastors, it might be easy. But for me, it's, it's hard to kind of vocal as I go, and go through this. There's so much that's happening. Because if you think about it, it's so easy to focus on the earthquake, you read the story, all this is going on, you're like, well, they got beat, that kind of sucks. But there was an earthquake. It shook the prison. Their binds came off. Nobody was, oh, it was amazing, the earthquake. You ever get just caught up in the miracle? The earthquake, oh, the earthquake. If I'm Paul, because I'm a fleshly dude, I'm like, screw the earthquake. I just got beat. Like, I'm not super happy about getting beat right here. I just got shamed publicly. I'm not leaving the prison. Yeah, whatever. I'm going to kill the guard on my way out. The earthquake is such a minor point in all this. It's not minor because God is weak because it's really exciting that he did that. 
but it's a minor point. The earthquake is cool and it's fun and it's neat. I'm not trying to belittle it. But you know what's even better? Two guys that chose to walk in victory and a family gets saved because of it. See, these guys literally get ushered by the Holy Spirit to this point. And through their suffering and through listening to the Spirit when he says, don't go to Asia or don't, South, don't go to Asia. Don't go to Bithynia. Don't do that. Go here. Go north. Meet Lydia. Go to her house. Start a church. Go back and forth to the place of prayer. Go to prison. Through that, and through walking in the suffering and the difficulty, something amazing happens. This, these people get saved. That's the true miracle of the story. That's the true miracle of of what happened here. The earthquake is miraculous and cool, but the eternal reality is that this Roman jailer who has seen, I, I, don't, I don't know what a Roman jailer has seen. I would imagine it's a lot. I would imagine that in a, in a judicial system like Rome had, that you saw a lot of garbage go on, that you got picked on by a lot of inmates, although it was a little bit different. If you picked on a guard, you just got the snot beat out of you. Uh, so that was probably a little different. But the, these, this person, this hardened jailer, and his whole family get saved. And not only do they get saved in like kind of a glorious manner, but his life is instantly changed. Check this out. Let's, let's, let's read about what happens here. So we get in there. Midnight, they're singing. Verse 25. And then it says there in verse 26, Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open. And he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So there's so much miracle happening in this one little section. The earthquake is impressive, yes. But the, all the bonds were removed. Every prisoner's bonds were removed. But nobody left. You know, as I was researching some historical stuff on this, about Roman prison and whatever... Uh, one of the things that uh, I, I came across was a little bit disappointing. And it was a, a, a guy that I'm sure saved or whatever. It's not for me to judge. But he went on this whole thing about how this is just a giant embellishment by Luke. That essentially what happened here most likely was they went to jail. They probably got uh, caned. And then they just kind of got out by, by the, the, uh, the judicial system, let them out and, and adjudicated them. And they got out, and Luke just kind of makes it fantastic for the early church to read about. And he kind of brought up this stuff and about how, you know, realistically an earthquake isn't going to open chains and all this kind of thing. And I thought that's really interesting, that your conclusion would be that an earthquake doesn't open chains. Well, yeah, of course it doesn't. I mean, I've seen a lot of chains from tow trucks and different things like that, and they get shaken all the time and they don't break. But I think it's been wisely said, if you can believe Genesis 1, 1, and 2 that God created the heavens and the earth, then really we shouldn't have a big problem with this. I mean, honestly, if God can't open a set of handcuffs, like, we should go home because we're done for. So when we look at this, every part of this is miraculous. Can you imagine be your average heathen in chains and they fall off and he sticks around? Why did he stick around? 
So, and again, I don't want to project too much here because we don't know. So, right, that's important. So as a matter of just conjecture or idea, could it be the singing and the praying that was followed by the earthquake? That all of a sudden these prisoners, their chains fall off and they say, what happened here? Who are these guys? Could it be the fact that, that they stayed? But it's dark because the, the, the jailer goes for lights. He calls for lights. So you have this earthquake. Their fetters and their, their uh, little wooden thing, whatever, the stocks fall, op- fall open. Their chains come off. Everybody's chains come off. Every single door opens. It's dark. Nobody leaves. The jailer pulls a sword out to kill himself. Why? Because the jailer would have been slain. He would have been tortured and then slain. What he's doing by attempting to kill himself is preserving his family's honor, and he's preserving himself a lot of suffering. Because in the Roman culture, as a Roman soldier or jailer, if you let someone go, if you lost a prisoner, then the prisoner, whatever the, the prisoner was going to be or could have been um, punished with, you got. So if that prisoner was going to be scourged, you got scourged. If that prisoner was going to be executed, you got executed. Very motivating, I'm sure, for a jailer. So when this jailer comes to the conclusion, maybe it's, it seems it's probably dim light, because all of a sudden he realizes somehow that all the prisoners are gone. So he pulls his short sword out and he's going to kill himself because he's, he's, he's preserving his honor and he's avoiding a lot of pain by doing that. But how does Paul even know this? Because it's evidently the jailer can't see Paul. Paul can't see the jailer. He's calling for light. Everybody's still in their thing, in their, their cells. They're not moving. And then Paul says, don't hurt yourself. How does Paul even know what he's doing? Would he hear the slide of the sword in the scabbard? I mean, how would he know what's going on? But yet he hears this, he has this message, this supernatural knowledge, which for us shouldn't be surprising because we're told that over and over again in the New Testament that part of the, part of the giftings of the Spirit are words of wisdom and words of knowledge. Maybe you've even experienced before where God has revealed something to you in a conversation or an issue that supernaturally there's no way you could have known that. So we don't really have to have a hard time with the fact that Paul, this whole thing goes on in just this wild, awesome, miraculous manner. Paul says, don't hurt yourself. And then his response is fascinating. He comes and he, and he, he basically comes before Paul and Silas and he's scared to death. Why is he scared to death? The prisoners are all still there. All he has to do is close the gates. He has other guards there because he called for light. He has backup. So why is he now scared to death? The reality is God has been working in this man's heart. That's my conjecture. You can throw it away. But he comes up and he says, what must I do to be saved? So let's think about what's happened here. This is just Joe Schmo jailer, Roman citizen, coming to pull his shift at the prison. He's guarding these guys. This earthquake happens. Now, they've been going for many days. It's very possible this jailer's like, aren't you the dude that those, that lady was falling around screaming that you're servants of the Most High God and you bring a way of salvation? You know, maybe. Paul and Silas are like, yeah, it was us. Didn't you cast that demon out? Yeah, yeah, it, the Lord did it. Yeah, we were there for that. Whoa, that's crazy. Okay, we'll get in jail. <laughs> yeah, but all that to say is, These guys have been in town for many days. They've been stirring up the magistrates for many days. God has been working in this jailer's heart. 
There, in my opinion, there's just no other way. How in the world, why in the world does this guy come and fall at their feet? Why does he equate their singing and their praying with the earthquake? Why would he even make that connection? Why wouldn't he just be like, oh, this is Pompeii or, you know, Philip or uh, was it Laodicea or millions of other places that have had gnarly earthquakes during the Roman reign. But no, he equates it to them and to what they're doing. What's the whole point in this? It's a terrible situation, no matter how you slice it. This guy's got a terrible job. He's a jailer. That'd be a hard job. He's got a family at home to provide for. These guys have been absolutely violated and had their rights infringed and they're beaten to a pulp. And yet in the most terrible of situations all the way around, God does something amazing. He's working in Paul and Silas and he's working in the jailer. And all of a sudden this jailer, through the Holy Spirit, and, and my conjecture is knowledge of who they are ahead of time, comes to them and says, what must I do to be saved? That is not a normal thing for a jailer to say to an inmate. What must I do to be saved? And then Paul and Silas, they both, it says, they told him. They both, they're both talking to him. It's like tag team now. It says, they told him. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus. And this is a, not a side note, but a side note, if I will, if I can. I do will, so I will. But as a side note, it's really important to take scriptural lowest common denominators. And what I mean by that is, you have to, when you look through scripture, you see different things. You have to look at the, the common denominators. And this is the most important one that there is. How does a person get saved? By believing on Jesus. That's how a person gets saved. They don't say you have to quit being a jailer. You have to renounce your citizenship. You're going to have to do this. You're going to have to do that. They just say you have to believe on what Jesus did. And then they begin to talk to him about it. And so this guy actually pulls them out of the prison. They haven't, and, he, and he gives them food and he washes their wounds. So that tells us what condition they were in prison. No food and dirty wounds. And in that place, they sing out. And then God does this amazing work. God is constantly working. And it can seem sometimes, because of how we feel, because of low blood sugar, because of circumstances, because of all sorts of things, it can feel like God's not really working. If God was working, I wouldn't have to wear a mask in the store. If God was working, my, I wouldn't have any problems with people around me. If God was working, this person would repent. It's always somebody else that needs to repent when God's working, but, you know, whatever. If this was happening, if that was happening, then this, and we discount things. This jailer's salvation was months in the making if not years. It didn't, it, it, it kicked off, as far as we can see, when Paul and Barnabas split ways. And they go west, and Paul goes northwest. Months in the making. So we have to understand that God, he's not slack. You know, First Peter told, told us that. He's not slack, as some people call, uh, call it slackness. In other words, God's not lacking. He's not slacking off. He's not just letting things go. It says that he's slow and he's working because he's, he's willing that not anyone should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. So why is the world the way it is? Because there's a prince of power of the air. And he's very motivating. 
and he motivates us, and he motivates those who have rejected Christ. And there's a, there's a, a the, we're there in Ephesians, a pneuma or a spirit, a wind that's blowing in this world, and it's going in a direction. And that's where the world's going. So why is the world naughty and terrible? Because we're naughty and terrible, and because Satan is naughty and terrible. And he's moving the world in a certain direction. But it doesn't mean that God is not working. It doesn't mean that God has failed. It doesn't mean that God is socking off. It doesn't mean that God doesn't see us. It means none of that. It means that he's working and we get to suffer. Amen. You know, when Paul would write back to the Philippians, in Philippians chapter 1, he writes back to them. And he says to them, he says, It's been given to you not only to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but to suffer for him also. It's uh, verses 27 through 30. And the word given, it's not, in other words, in some, some translations and other places, the word given means to be addicted to or something like that. In this, the word given, it means a present, a gift. Like essentially you got saved and then the Holy Spirit wrapped up this gift for you and he gave it to you and you opened it. It was like suffering. That's what it means. It's been gifted to you to suffer for Christ. And Why? Why would that be a gift? Shouldn't the gift be health and wealth? Shouldn't the gift be my politicians that I like do everything right? Shouldn't it be that I have everything I ever wanted? Shouldn't it be that everybody agrees with me? (laughs) All the things that we can think about. But that's not how the kingdom of God gets built. Suffering, when he writes back to the Romans, in Romans chapter 5, He says that suffering reaps something in us. It reaps endurance or patience. It's a kind of a funny word. It's it's like hypomony, basically. And it means to stay under pressure. Suffering, when met with faith, gives us the ability to stay in a hard place. And when we stay in a hard place, walking in faith, that builds something else. It builds character in us, the scripture says. In other words, it forms us into something as a habitual, uh, habitual um, uh, I don't know what you call it, way or a habitual uh, characterization. I can't use the word to define a word, but there you go. What happens is when we walk in patience, it becomes who we are. In other words, we don't try to be patient. We are patient. You guys know the difference? Right? We all know the difference. There's that moment where you're like, I'm being patient. It's happening right now. <laughs> you know, right? The kids are crazy, you know, whatever. The toilet's overflowing, whatever it is. And you're just in the corner going, I am patient, right? There's that. And then there's being patient. Where all that's happening, and you're like, no, nah, all right. Not what I wanted, but uh, we're going to move on with life. I'm not irritated. I'm not agitated. I'm observing and I'm going to address the situation. All of a sudden, I'm going to make a decision and choose. So literally, suffering, when met by faith, it reaps a patience in us, which is not reacting. But that patience morphs into a character. It becomes who we are. And then that character, it depends on, but also develops hope. This is all Romans 5. Hope being expectation. What is our expectation? Our expectation is that God is doing something great and he's not going to let us down. 
So when we get told by Paul through the Holy Spirit, or I should say through, by the Holy Spirit through Paul, when he says, when you got saved, God gift wrapped something for you, and it's suffering, it is the venue, it's the dynamic, it's the very thing that brings us to be like Jesus. So we have an option of rejecting that suffering, and we can reject it even when we're in the middle of it by uh, finding everybody that we know and complaining about it constantly. There's, a, there's kind of a weird thing. Maybe you've experienced this. You feel like if you keep talking about something, it will make it better. Have you ever experienced that before? You can talk to one person about the situation and you still don't feel good. So you go, I'm going to go talk to someone else about this situation. And I'm going to tell all, them all about how I don't like it. And then I'm going to find someone else. I'm going to find someone else. I'm going to find someone else. Or I can do it all in one shot and just put it on Chinookville on Facebook and I'm gold, right? But then it still doesn't feel good. Because talking something out is not the end of the solution. We should talk things out. And you should have close friends that love you and will listen to you. Friends that are able to sweep away the chaff from the true meat of what's being said. We need those friends. But it's not the talking of it out that we'll find, we'll find our healing. It's in the faithful decision after we talk it out where we find our healing. Where we say, this is what's happened. This is why I'm upset. This is how I've been wronged. And then we say, but I forgive that person in the name of Jesus. It's when I say, you know what? That person, the blood cleansed and wants to cleanse them too. It's when I say, I don't have to let what they did or who they are rule me. Or I don't have to let who I am and what I've done rule me. I can move forward because I'm not that anymore. So this, this reality of what's happening here, the fact that God is working, that patience is creating character. Character is bringing about hope or expectation. And that hope will never let me down. I am a master at making up reasons of why I'll get let down by God. It's not, it's, it's ugly, but it's the truth. I'm a master of it. This morning I was reading um, a couple of news articles before I, I got uh, back into the scripture to read. That's uh, typically what I do when I have my first cup of coffee in the morning. And there's just all these um, headlines, a bunch of headlines. And they're all just like, the economic crash is coming. The economic crash is coming. And you're like, are they just now putting those headlines? Because I feel like, you know... Nine months ago, maybe we could have done that. But there's all these headlines about economic crafts. Uh, well, economic crap too, I guess, but economic <laughs> collapse. So all this is going on, right? And immediately I start thinking to myself, okay, what, what can we do here? What's the minimum I can live on? What's it going to take to make the house payment? Should we store up a little bit of food? How would the government start to move? Like what would happen? Uh, you know, these things. 30% of Americans this month did not pay their full mortgage. That is not sustainable. That's not sustainable, sustainable at all. So I, I made me really anxious as I was reading these headlines. And I thought, what's going to happen to my family? And, and, and what's gonna, what do I do to head this off? Like, what can I do? But from the headlines I'm reading... What they're saying is, this is going to make 1929 look like the glory days of 2010 during the bubble. Yeah. It's going to be rough. So what do we do with that? And I started thinking about it, and I started getting really anxious. And it was funny, because the Lord spoke to my heart this morning. He said, you know what? Have I ever let you down? And the answer is no. He never asked. 
but I'm really good at making up ways that he will. This is the time. This is the time I watch my kids starve. This is the time that I get evicted. This is the time that everything is crashing down. And the Lord's saying, and I'm not saying that the Lord will always preserve our lives in, from, for the, in the like, last couple hundred, 150 years of the Caesars, they estimate like something crazy, like 35 million Christians were slain by the Caesars. So he's not promising us, promising us physical life, but he'll always provide for us. He said he would. He said, he's, David, makes, as a prophet, said, I've never seen the righteous begging bread. Doesn't mean we'll have everything we want, but he's going to provide for us. And so in the very moment, we have an option. Do we trust that he provides? Or do we say, this is the time? Because I'm really good at saying this is the time. And this is why it won't work out. But he is working. And he's doing great things. And it's up to us to merely acknowledge that that is what his scripture lays out for us. And to lay fear by the wayside. Even as Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. These guys had to go through months of traveling and difficulty. And out of that came this church that's born. And when you read about, like, for example, Thomas, there are churches in India, because that's where Thomas kind of ended up, Turkey and India, that can trace their lineage back to Thomas. You know how Thomas was killed? He was run through and then set on a spike. He had to die. But the, what, the life that came through him and his suffering lives on to this day and will live on to eternity. The lives that were changed because he was willing to travel and willing to suffer. There's this weird spiritual law. And I've mentioned this before, but it's a very weird spiritual law. When we take our eyes off us and we, we say, we make that decision, I'm trusting you. I'm walking with you. I'm rejecting those thoughts. When we do that, and when we begin to serve other people in whatever venue God calls us to do that, it's a radical cure to anxiety and depression. It's a radical cure. And pick whatever ministry you, you, you want to pick, whether it's part of this church or not part of this church, whatever it might be, but any ministry that God leads you in, where, or, or me, where I have to get up and get out of my recliner and serve someone, it's amazing. It's amazing how healing that is. And even in the worst of sufferings and the toughest of times, when we're willing to step forward and invite God to, to bring that healing to us, it is incredible what he can do in us. In Romans chapter 8, if you wouldn't mind turning there, so about 10 years later, 10, from now, Paul's going to write a letter to the Romans. He wants to go there, and he's sending a letter to them to let them know about salvation, about his heart for them, and all sorts of stuff, what God is doing with Israel. And as he's summing up what salvation is and how it works and all these things, he, he uh, shares some things with us. And we're going to skip through, kind of skip around a little bit for time's sake. But he says there in verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
So we'll stop there. So to, to consider, right? We know what considering are. We use that word all the time. Did you consider this or what did you consider that? And what we're saying is, have you thought through that? Have you weighed things out and thought through that? So Paul says this. He says, I have considered. I consider this. I've already thought about it. I've already looked at both sides of the, the, the coin. And he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. So not only are they not the same, or one is more valuable than the other, he says that the sufferings are so meager that they're not even something that you can compare with the glory that's to be revealed. In other words, when you go to the store and you grab two avocados, right? You have company coming over, you're going to make guacamole for them or whatever, and you grab two avocados and you're sitting there and you're, you're, you're massaging them all. You're not supposed to because COVID, but you do because who wants to spend two bucks and get ripped off, right? So you're going through these different ones, and you, you squeeze one, and you're like, ah, that's a little soft. I don't want a brown one. I don't want mush. But then you squeeze the other, and you're like, oh, it's kind of firm, but it's, eh, it's kind of getting there. And you're, you're, it's a comparison, right? And you're going to pick one. You're going to go, well, probably you're going to pick the one that's a little bit harder, and it, it might, you know, eh, it might not make as good a guacamole, but it's not going to be brown guacamole. So you, you pick that one. So they, but they were worth considering, right? They, were one, they, they could have gone either way. But Paul's saying, no, you can't even do that with the sufferings and what, and what God is doing. You, you can't even, there, there's, there's no weight. There's no scales. There's what God is doing, and then there's some suffering somewhere down in there. And he says they're not even comparable. It's apples and oranges. You, you, you can't even compare them. There's no weight. There's, there's no possibility that you can say, I really want to skip these sufferings because the glory just isn't going to be worth it. And when we say glory, we're not saying like God comes along and like high fives you and is like, well, you're really great. Glory literally means good opinion or weightiness. And so the idea of glory well, is that, the, that we will share with and intimately understand who God is, the good opinion, his glory, that we'll bask in his illuminosity, as it were, that's what he's talking about. He says it's not even comparison. Jesus, in John chapter 17, in his, in his high priestly prayer, he says a couple things, a lot of things, but he says, he says, all that you've given me, I want them to be with me, and I want them to behold my glory. I want them to see who I am and how I love them. I want them to see, in, in a sense, it could even almost sound um, pompous, but he's saying, I want them to see the good opinion that I am, my good opinion, who I am, because he's so good, it's, it's glorious, as it were. And he says, and I want all those who have trusted in me to be one with me, as I am with you, Father. And then he says, for you, Father, love them in the same way you love me. I mean, it's almost inappropriate that Jesus says, there's, in heaven, there's going to be such a unity and such a reality and a platonic intimacy that we'll have that kind of connection with God. And so any kind of suffering that we go to that reaps that patience, character, and hope, and joy will be almost like multiplied because that will be the consummation of those experiences. In other words, have you ever had, most of us probably have, can point to a time, whether it was in our, by ourselves, with our Bible, or whether it was out at the beach, or in church, or wherever it was, and just God was there. Have you experienced that before? God was there. And if, when you came out, you couldn't explain it. You couldn't, it wasn't tangible. You could just say, I, God was there. 
and there was joy and there was peace. And whether it was manifested through shouts of joy or tears of prayer or everything in between, God was there. And how glorious was that? How weighty was that for your soul? That's what heaven is. But with sight and sound and recognition. So Paul comes along, he, he's going to get beaten with Rod three more times. He's going to go through shipwreck. He's going to get beat by, uh, or he's going to get bit by a serpent. <laughs> Remember that when he goes to the island, he's making a fire, a snake, a viper jumps out, bites his hand, and the natives are like, this dude's a murderer and God's judging him. He shakes it off into the fire and they're like, this dude's a god. <laughs> right? All the crazy stuff that's going to happen to him. Spending a night in the deep holding on to floating debris. And he says, all the things that I've been through, I can't, they're not even, you can't use them in the same sentence is what God has for us. And so it's important for us to realize that we have a great hope and a great expectation. It's important for us to realize that God is, he's not done. This suffering is usually not punitive. It just is. And if we allow it, it will only do good for us. It will only work out for us in great ways and for those around us. To remove ourselves from suffering in a fleshly manner. I'm not saying don't run away from someone who's beating you. Or I'm not saying that. But in a context where we clearly are just suffering, whether it's physical ailments, even Paul he says the Lord gave him a physical ailment. It was a thorn in the flesh. He said, three times I asked that the Lord remove that thorn. And every time he said, my grace is sufficient for you. You have an ailment that you really wish was gone? In Paul's case, it's kind of funny. He said, he goes, I have so much revelation. God didn't want me to get proud. So he smote me with this. So maybe you just have a grip of revelation. God needs to calm me down. I don't know. But if you have an ailment that won't go away, Ask God what he's reaping in you, what he wants in you. It's not a punishment. It's just suffering. And the more we let that suffering reap patience and character, the more that we're going to be changed. And, and really, in heaven, we'll have that experiential knowledge and all that kind of stuff to share. We're out of time, but he's basically going to go through this thing and say, look, the whole creation feels the same way. The creation's been subject to bondage and, you know, all this being destroyed because of what man did and everything that's going on. And then he goes on to say this, that in verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for, we, don't know what, we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for uh, words. The Holy Spirit helps us when we're weak. A lot of times we get this very weird kind of estimation of grace. And we give grace when people deserve grace, right? And we think that's how God works. In other words, if we're good enough, God like gives us some grace. But if we've been really naughty, then we're kind of out. Like we don't deserve it. Which is really funny because that's the complete opposite of what grace is and what mercy is. You don't need grace until you need grace, right? If you're really good at something, you don't need any grace. If you're like an amazing cook and you cook an amazing meal, you don't come to the table and be like, oh, be gracious with me. This is only the 500th time I've cooked this amazing steak, <laughs> right? You're like, there it is, enjoy. 
But if you come up and like the steak's all burnt and gnarly, you're like, oh, I'm so sorry. Please oh, have grace on me. I mean, that's never happened to me, but I've heard, you know, this, this. just kidding. But he says that the Holy Spirit, he helps us when we're weak. When we're weak. When you've got nothing. In fact, he goes on to say, we don't know how we should even pray. Have you ever experienced that before? I don't even know how to pray. I'm so broken. The situation is so broken. I don't even know how I should pray. That's how I feel like sometimes right now. Like it feels like you read every news outlet there is from radical left to radical right, and you're like trying to piece together what may be happening. And you're like, I don't know how to pray for the nation. I don't know how to pray to pray for my family. I don't know how to pray for the church. I, I'm, just, I'm at a lot. I don't know how to pray for my life. And it says the Holy Spirit, he kicks in. And he starts praying for you. And it says that the Father, we're not, not going to read it right out of time, but it says the Father, that he hears the Spirit, knows the mind of the Spirit, because the, the Spirit always prays for God's will for you and for me. So it's, it's kind of different, I think, for us, for how the Trinity works. But God the Father, who loves us, whose children we are, listens to God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit's prayers, and the Holy Spirit's interceding for us because we just trusted in what God the Son did through His blood. So, like, we have it easy. We're just casting our cares on Him. We're just acknowledging Him. And, and the Spirit's going, yeah, that's true, but, you know, would you do this too, Father, for them? And the Father's like, yes, I will. You knew exactly what I was saying. I'm going to do that. And then and Jesus is right there to make intercession for us, saying, yeah, remember, this guy, this lady, they've received my, my blood. They, they received the sacrifice. They're holy. In Romans 5, Paul even says, he says, but because we trusted Christ, we have peace with God. See, all that, we have peace. If you trust, you're at peace with God. He's not at war with you. He's not against you. He's not trying to smite you. Isn't that hilarious, though, if you think about it? The logic behind, well, I'm going through the suffering because I've been bad and God's trying to crush me. Like it's some sort of challenge for him? As if he like, had to chase you down? Oh, I finally got you, suffering, suffering. I mean, it's just ridiculous. If he wanted to wreck you, he could, and he would. There's no one out of his grasp. All things are laid naked and bare before him. But it's not what he's doing. So if you're suffering today, you don't have to wonder why. It's for your benefit. You can wonder about how it happened. That's fine. Was it that person? Was it you? Was it someone else? Was it just this crummy world? That's fine. Sometimes it becomes a fool's errand to try to figure out why you're suffering unless you did it to yourself. But outside of that, you're suffering because it's good for you, and so am I. You're suffering because it's going to develop something in you. We have a great calling. And in the end, it comes down to this. He says there in verse 28, it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We know something. We know that as we walk with faith, as we love God, everything that comes into our life, he can work for good. It can have bad effects but he can work it for good. And so just like Paul and Silas and all the, uh, as Hebrews 11 says, the, the uh, so great a cloud of witnesses that has gone before us, 
the witnesses to this, that, that God is great. He's doing great things. So let's take a page from Romans and from James, and let's rejoice in our sufferings. Let's thank God. Thank you for suffering. Thank you that you've given me difficulty. And let's be honest. Lord, forgive me for creating this difficulty, if there's something like that in, your, in our lives. Lord, forgive me for creating difficulty for others. May it work out for, together for their good. Lord, help me to see how you can work this together for good. Let's humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And he'll exalt us in due time. So, praise God for the book of Acts and for these great examples. Miracles are afoot. And uh, regardless of any virus or anything else, God is not done. And we're just going to keep pressing forward. And let's see who gets saved. And let's see who, let's see, or I should say, let's see what God does in our hearts so we can grow. Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace. Lord, thank you for the examples that we have of these guys and gals that went before us that chose you, made tough decisions, and that you did great things through. Lord, we praise you for our suffering. We thank you for physical pain. Lord, we thank you for just the, sometimes just being confused. Lord, we thank you that you're able to work all things together for good. Lord, thank you for our financial situations. Lord, thank you if they get bad. Thank you if they get good. Lord, teach us to be abased and to abound. Lord, we pray that you would be exalted in our lives, in our church. We pray, Lord, that you would bring people to us to be saved and that we'd be able to give them the gospel just like this um, jailer. Lord, thank you that you're still doing great things. We appreciate you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.